Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. In our March-April issue, I wrote a feature about the dwindling supply of good American film comedies. And as I was working on the article, the only new comedies in theaters were Fist Fight and the Lego Batman movie. Not instant classics. I suggested a few reasons for this. The economic pressure on films to play well globally, the reliance on self-defeating stale formulas, the amount of time it takes for a film to be made, which makes jokes less timely, and the proliferation of comedic talent on TV and the internet. In this episode of the podcast, I expand upon these ideas and digress a great deal with... Robert Sweeney. I am a producer at Kino Lorber, small film distributor, and I also contribute to Film Comment and uh, the Filmstruck blog Streamline. And Michael Delaney from the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Here's the conversation. Well, thank you both for coming. So today feels weird because usually I do this for other people's features, but I today's episode is going to be focused on a feature that I wrote analyzing comedy over the past six or eight years and how it's, well, I don't want to say gone downhill, but it's definitely sort of taken on a flavor and that's not... You know, not great. <laughs> um, it uh, even like comedy itself seems to be dwindling at the theater, and people seem to be focusing more on television or the internet. And hopefully, we can talk about that. But um, you know, Michael, you've taught at UCB, and you've actually been in films with people who have either people who have gone through. I don't want to say this UCB system. Uh, that's a little contentious. No, but it'd be fair to say. But it'd be fair to say. So I want to start out by asking the auteur question, because we all know very funny people who have either written or acted in a film that's just just awful. But then there are also people who transcend that. So I'm thinking of, you know, like Phil Lord and Chris Miller, like they're two guys who definitely, they're a name and they can sort of like transcend crap and... Could you talk about how does someone go about transcending that? I think just be super talented. I mean, there are those people who do transcend awfulness. Mm -hmm. and But I think those are worst case scenarios. I don't think that's when everything's clicking. I think sometimes you see a play or a movie that is feels like garbage, but yet somebody was so good that it made it kind of worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's the thing that can be taught. I think arming yourself against that kind of thing is the part that can be taught. Okay. So you're not just going to blame the suits? No. <laughs> <laughs> they may be to blame, but that's out of my sphere. Okay. Lord and Miller, they kind of, they revel in the garbage. They they put that front and center in their mm -hmm. movies, and that, that perhaps that is the thing that makes their movies successful. This people go into it saying, oh, this is going to be another branded enterprise, and they, they're told that it is at the beginning, and then they can take away that criticism immediately i mean they are well written in constructed films but it doesn't i mean that tension never goes away i mean i'd like the lego movie but i not tempted to revisit it so much of those of that film in particular is just making fun of the fact that it's like oh my god are we really doing this yes yeah, we are and, but then there are also really some other really great jokes in there like it's sort mm -hmm. of like i say in my article it's like performing your frustration at watching the same thing over again like it's mm -hmm. doing it for you and so you feel like a little better mm -hmm. for having watched it and it makes the process less tedious but nevertheless it's still like something you've seen before 
they were leaving their own mark on it, nevertheless. It also, it kind of feels to be a little pre-chewed, like they've done your yeah. thinking for you a yeah, little yeah, bit, yeah. which makes it, it doesn't stick afterward for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's despite, like, they're great performers. I mean, Will Arnett is, is, is wonderful as, as Batman. I haven't seen the, the Batman Lego movie yeah, as of I, yet. Unfortunately, neither have I. I didn't get <laughs> so, a chance. you know, <laughs> we're bad researchers. Yeah, that that kind of tension just it doesn't disappear for me, and... The Lord and also the Lord and Miller films, Twenty One Jump Street. Again, mm-hmm. I saw the first one, didn't see the second one. Uh, the situation where they have these wonderful performers who have to deal with these scenarios that are again pre-chewed, like you know, and half the movie is about how bad the movie is, <laughs> and then it doesn't let you just freely let loose into the the comedy. I guess. Yeah, I liked. I actually like the second one better. Oh, okay. Which ends with this utterly ridiculous, like, credits or pre credit sequence as opposed to a post credit sequence, which we're all now familiar with <laughs> as part of this world building franchise shit. Um, they do like 12 possible sequels that they could have done too. <laughs> this is, like, it's like, you know, it gets up to like 32 Jump Street or something insane. And it's, it's like really funny, but yeah, like you say, it's sort of like pre chewed, mm-hmm. maybe not. Um, I want to go back to something you said about films going downhill, particularly comedies going downhill. And I, I feel like they are, but mm. I think that's my bias. Yeah. I think so. So I, 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 I see it that way, but I try not to look at it that way mm-hmm. and tell myself, look, things are changing. Right. Whether I like them or not, this is the way they are. Yeah. And, but I do see things going uphill at the same time. In some ways they're going downhill, but in some ways they're going up. Well, where do you feel like they're going up? I think by empowering the performers a little bit more and giving them more room, like you mentioned Keaton, you know, in your Mm -hmm. article, and how much space he would give himself once he found out what space he was working in, only then could he figure out, how am I going to work this? How am I going to really squeeze this location in this situation for everything it's worth, really using the whole buffalo. Right. And I think doing a lot of alts and doing takes and uh, all the improvisation that's worked its way into the process is really healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think those other things, the other good things that we miss, I, I don't think they're going to go away. I, they may go out of style, but they're not going to go out, go away. Right. I mean, do you feel like there'll be a resurgence of maybe more... Films that are based more in the real world upon real lived experience as opposed to sort of commenting on the form or making fun of the the conditions of its making. I'm hoping so. And not just in film and TV and culture. I think this is a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in a recycle phase right now. We're, oh, definitely. We're, we're re- the 21st century is about recycling everything that we did in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And we've got to come out of that at some point. Maybe it'll take till the 22nd century to do that. I don't know. But maybe recycling isn't the worst thing. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that line, there's a lot of lines that are getting blurred. Yeah. If listeners have seen uh, Out One, the, the first episode of Out One includes something, obviously Out One follows this experimental theater troupe as they, you know, they're going through these lines. And what they do in the first episode is an organic. And I think it would be great to hear you talk about the form of the Heralds and what that means in terms of, you know, how it, it, it works in, uh, you know, improv theater and then how you feel it's sort of come to influence screenwriting or the actual act of making a film. The Harold, you know, is long form, which means actually means shorter scenes, mm-hmm. lots of cutting around, lots of borrowing from film technique, and really just 
cutting and warping to whatever, where the interesting part of the scene is leading, you just kind of cut there rather quickly. And also lots of cutaways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we see that all the time in TV and films now. And I think that's something that's a technique that gets borrowed from the Harold. The Harold structure is really based on a tripod of three disparate things, usually a minimum of three and not too many more of primary things that seemingly have nothing to do with each other when the affair starts. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the piece, somehow things come together. You just have to not plan anything at all. Unlike a movie where you got to plan everything. Right. I think that's sort of the interesting conflict because, you know, so many people like Will Ferrell have come up through this improv, either at the Groundlings or at UCB, performing on Saturday Night Live, which is very sketch-based. And, 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 and it seems totally opposed to the actual act of making movies which is again like you plan everything out is improv or just comedy itself like actually amenable to the three-act structure i don't think pure improv is no mm -hmm. i think you need that skeleton you need the um architecture mm -hmm. you know like those guffman movies are about those christopher guest movies like right. waiting for guffman are probably about as far as you want to go I've seen pure improv movies, and they're tough to get through. Tough, they're tedious to get through. Yeah. How how pure are the Adam McKay movies? Not very. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They just do so many takes and so many alts that within the framework of the uh, you know of the story of, mm -hmm. of the of the big picture, the big arc, there's all these little arcs that have lots of room for flexibility. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you were in the other guys. Uh huh. And so could you talk actually, could, I mean, what was the experience of being on set like? I mean, the part you were in, did it use maybe more of that improvisational, spontaneous? It does. But I'll tell you, improvising in a movie is a lonely affair. Mm. It, I mean, it really does <laughs> yeah. require, I think, a, a lot of your powers as an individual, mm -hmm. as opposed to on stage where it's very ensemble based. And The Other Guys is a very ensemble movie. And there was a lot of that. But I found for myself... Uh, to be to feel like I was a bit in the spotlight in the hot, the white hot spotlight, you know, <laughs> because the camera's trained on you and it's your shot and and um, I don't like to prepare too much, mm -hmm. so it was actually tough. It was much tougher than doing the Harold. And I guess I mean, as, aside from sort of feeling that pressure, why why was that, or was it just entirely the pressure? I think so. I think the solo thing, that's why a lot of people get into improvisation mm -hmm. and, and want to express themselves as a comedian through sketch and improv because we like, we like the, the comfort and the safety, but not just the safety for me. It's the beauty mm -hmm. and the wonderfulness of, uh, and the surprise of having something going back and forth between you and another individual as opposed to me just expressing myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm really used to working in a binary way that I make a move and then another person make a move and I make a move and another person makes a move instead of go again, Delaney, go again, go again. What else you got? What else you got? Mm. Because mm. in the Herald, it's not about being put on the spot, which is, I think, the difference between long form and short form. Mm -hmm. Short form improv is for people who can really deliver on the spot. And in long form, that will serve you but it's more than being put on the spot. It's us kind of figuring out this theatrical problem. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the, the question of whether comedy is bad. <laughs> comedy movies are bad today because I'm always reluctant to just to talk Dismiss, in those yeah. kind of generalities. Well, they've been bad in the past too. Everybody, yes, exactly. The 80s Every, was a terrible time for comedy. Everybody, well, I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with that, you know? So, I mean, how much of it is the age at which you see 
something like nostalgia for how, how open are you at a younger age to comedies i mean for me i think the naked gun is like the uh, the premier <laughs> <laughs> comedy of my life and i saw that when i was like eight years old yeah. and how much does that plug into it and like kids today who are seeing the lord and miller movies like are they are they feeling that same thing um and i'm so i'm and like while at, at the same time my critical faculties are saying these are more compromised kind of works i at the other half of me is saying well what am i what am i missing because i'm older and less less open to these kinds of things now mm-hmm. i think that's a great point i think accident of birth has everything to do with why something's funny which is why i like to try to not think of comedy as people are doing it especially in my arena mm-hmm. as going downhill because it's not to my taste mm-hmm. what is to your taste i mean what were the films yeah. that you grew up with um, I, I really did love you know, it depends what age I was. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was real young, I loved um, that movie Paper Moon. Oh, okay. It just really mm-hmm. did it for me. But also Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. And then later when I was a teen, you know, Caddyshack was the big mm-hmm. picture. But then things like uh, uh, um, Being There, you know, really hit me too. And it, it wasn't hip to like Being There. It just came on HBO when I was a teenager. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? And since they played all their movies incessantly, I watched them incessantly. <laughs> and I you know, really got off on those kind of movies. And then we all kind of got off on The Godfather and Goodfellas and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, that found its way into comedy. It really did, especially with that Human Giant uh, sketch show, which yes. was very pulpy and very lots of squibs, lots of blood, <laughs> you know, where where the film techniques start really entering into the, the comedy. Yeah, mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right about accident of birth because to a 17 year old there's nothing wrong at all there's no flaw in um the hangover mm-hmm. or any of these other very in your face kind of comedies i can say even anecdotally i know someone who absolutely loved kentucky fried movie but was completely opposed to things like scary movie or uh epic movie and it's like mm-hmm. it's literally the same thing and you know See, seeing... i would be very upset about that comparison oh really <laughs> why well okay so defend because it's like literally the same concept i mean the writing is worse i'm not gonna i'm not gonna yes. but it's the same concept do you mean like the so like between zaz and like the seltzer friedman stuff yeah I mean, yeah yeah well i think there's also a distinction to be made in terms of like what is like again not we're talking about age but i think also just as we progress in culture like for me i think there was sort of a line you can was drawn in the first scary movie where the i think it's it was a carmen electric this woman gets like mm-hmm. blasted onto this the the ceiling and stuck on the ceiling because this guy finally came and like he, she's just stuck on the ceiling with <laughs> semen and it's like you would never see that in a zazz movie <laughs> like, correct never and, it, and it's like because all this it was like a little dirty but it was like well, I mean, Looney Tunes kind of dirty where it's like, you know, you grab the boob and it goes a wooga. Like it's it's, it's like it's like a simpler growth. Like, it's a simpler <laughs> like crassness, I want to say. Interesting. And then after that, like the floodgates were open and now it's just like gross is funny. Or like boobs when you don't expect boobs are funny. Unexpected always, boobs airplane. Yeah. The an airplane was it airplane two has unexpected boobs? I yeah. Think. yeah. Well I think censorship has a lot to do with that <laughs> yeah. too. Because yeah. all comedians are gonna push whatever boundaries were allowed to but generally this the sets the seltzer friedberg movies basically just reference movies they don't actually make jokes it's like here's here's something over here and then the naked gun they're just like all these puns and payoffs in every single frame of the movie i mean scary movies i some are good some are bad and actually the 
David Zucker directed, I think, two of the last ones. Mm. And Leslie Nielsen showed up as the president in the, so saw that one in the theater. No regrets. Um, <laughs> you, I'm sorry, you mentioned Kentucky Fried Movie, and I think there's something, though, special about a first. Like the Groove Tube and the mm-hmm. Kentucky Fried Movie were the first real sketch movies I ever saw, and there was something mm-hmm. special about that. And I think somehow you get a free pass when you're the first one to do something. Oh, sure. What was the, uh, didn't Monty Python have a sketch movie as well? Well, oh, they did yeah. release one, which is kind of a patchwork where they had reshot some of their old sketches, mm-hmm. right. the, uh, and now for something completely different, yes. yeah. I think. But I had already seen all those sketches and knew them and preferred the versions that I had memorized in my head, so that was a frustrating movie for me. Okay. To me, The Meaning of Life was their straight-up sketch yeah. movie yeah. Mm. because it didn't have the kind of arc that uh, Holy Grail and Brian had. I feel like that was sort of the first instance of them sort of shamelessly scraping the barrel. But even the shamelessness is like great now. Like I'm like (laughs) so thankful that it's still great and it's still shocking. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't have to talk about Monty Python. We can we can stick to American. Let's make American comedy great again. Exactly. (laughs) How do we do that? (laughs) (laughs) There's other American sketch movies. And for some reason, they just never work. The Pythons can make it work and we can't. The kids in the hall did okay, And Mr. Show did okay, Mm -hmm. But we we can't seem to pull them out. Beautifully. Does the Tim and Eric movie count as a sketch sketch movie? But it didn't do great. No. No. But maybe sketches aren't meant to be movies. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's again, that comes back to this question of form. And it's like to speak to like a generational thing growing up. I loved Adam Sandler movies. And I think Mm -hmm. you can make a quality. I think you could argue that the quality of those has gone downhill. I'm going to argue that. Just Sandler movies. (laughs) I'm I'm always ready to defend Sandler. But yeah. Yeah. But it's like because I think because when I would watch them, even even as a kid, the most painful and upsetting and frustrating moments for me was when the plot the structure would intervene Mm -hmm. because it would be like oh he has to like get this girl now like we Mm -hmm. have to feel bad for him he has to feel he has to be good to his grandmother now like i just like it would just irritate me and i'd just be like go back to being like a weird man child but i guess (laughs) i guess this i mean this is sort of another larger question but you know there's structure and then there's formula and what is the dividing line between those two things because it's like structure can so easily become a formula in something like very dead and like unenlivening yeah that's the, a word yeah what you wrote about in your piece how all comedies they've now aped like this blockbuster formula and there's mm-hmm. there's always this big car chase at the end and yeah. it's uh it's kind of yeah very very deadening and where the inspiration of the comedy where you have this looseness and invention it all disappears as the mechanics click in mm-hmm. and that's been a problem for comedy forever of course and it's hard to to deal with i guess but i guess it's more it's now it's that plus aping the structure of a blockbuster film instead of being able to do your own way. I always that I always loved Step Brothers for the way that film ended because that was one of the few films that doesn't really resolve in a, a, a natural way and it ends up in this very surreal, like unconnected yes. stretch of like like dreams and fantasies <laughs> and uh, the Catalina wine mixer. That's uh, yes. I thought that film was the one of the few films that actually succeeded and it has you know a structure I guess but it doesn't go down the usual route well it, i mean it ends with the people who have been telling them to grow up the entire movie being like don't worry about it we <laughs> prefer you like this yeah. <laughs> like that i mean and that and having that is just so liberating and mm-hmm. like strange and then like you say that there are all these bizarre digressions and it refuses 
to end like i yeah i think it no i think it's like easily i think it's a truly great movie like it's it's not like because comedy always whenever there's like oh the greatest movies of you know blah 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 comedy never gets on those lists that yeah. should be on those lists absolutely 100 percent. it does seem like one of those movies that they said let's just have as much fun as we can mm-hmm. yeah and they go down any crazy avenue i sympathize with you and your frustration at movies changing because they i mean movies have to change as they go through but i would get so frustrated yeah. watching a movie knowing this can't stay like this yes. and it's great it's great now yes. and it's not going to mm-hmm. stay like this and i hope it doesn't turn into something shitty and then it turns into something <laughs> shitty yeah. inevitably inevitably that's my beef with 80s comedies they would start in this really neat world and then they would just get stupid and unfunny because of all this story stuff that we didn't care that much about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we all that's what happened the, the opposite happened in Caddyshack where the movie they set out to make the real story got buried by all these really great comedy performances right yeah and the push and pull between Ted Knight and, and Rodney Dangerfield and then you got Bill Murray running around like, mm-hmm. like an insane person <laughs> uh, um, just that's what we love so much about it and there wouldn't be a movie and the movie wouldn't exist without Danny Noonan winning the golf tournament <laughs> but that's really the part we cared less about and it's so <laughs> ironic that it has to be there mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I almost feel like that applies to something like Kimmy Schmidt, which is like Ellie Kemper is like hilarious, and I yeah. think she brings so much to that character. But clearly, like as the show goes on, it's just Titus needs to be the main character. Like it's just like so frustrating. Where it's just like, when is he going to come back? Because it's like everything kind of like there's so many amazing moments with him mm-hmm. that just like can't happen with her, and it's like mm-hmm. frustrating. But yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why that is. That just happens though. These these things that should well, be side become the main right i mean who knew if they knew how amazing you know his character would be going into it beforehand right but thing that should be side becoming the main Mm -hmm. i think is everything that the creative process is about Mm -hmm. where you get in knowing we got to shoot x but then you discover Mm why while you're there Mm -hmm. and for me that's what's exciting about improv not just improv the whole process because improv we know it's if it's we know if we think it's x it's going to be y but when you got a script that's tight and wise minds have worked on and rewritten, still when you get in to shoot it, like Mike Nichols said, you're always looking for the thing you can't think of. How would you, I guess, contrast what Mike Nichols and Elaine May were doing with improv versus what the type that you practice and most, like a lot of this talent that we're talking about practice, aside from the fact that it's just two people? I think that for people like Elaine May and Mike Nichols and Del Close, that theater was the paradigm. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to improvise, but do something that really looks like theater. And I think that's the sort of vision that those kind of players had in their heads. And I think today's players have the vision they have in their heads is something more like sketch. Right. Where they're not trying to cr- like emulate w- what a real great live theatrical experience is like more a sketch experience or a stand-up experience, I think is the new paradigm that young players come into this stuff looking at. So I think that kind of classic Second City style sketch that had sort of a roundness to it and a, sort of a play, mm-hmm. every sketch was almost like a little play where there was some kind of resolution as opposed to just climax pure climax and i believe in improv i believe we can't get hung up on resolution we just look for climax but in sketch resolution is very nice Mm -hmm. so i think 
uh, yeah, I think that that's the main thing. But I, uh, fundamentally, though, as far as the principles are concerned, they really haven't changed. I think I still teach I still teach the tripod of improvisation that Elaine May kind of concocted with Mike Nichols, mm. of agreement, making the active choice, and justifying your behavior. You were saying earlier that improv has sort of influenced the way screenplays are written. And it would be great if you could like elaborate on how that is. I think the kind of humor and the just uh, the kind of patterns, mm-hmm. some of the strident patterns that get played out. You know, I think in movies of the past, you, the for for the patterns to pay off, we'd probably get you get a, a little bit in the first act, a little bit in the second act, and then it get capped off in the third act. As opposed to really accelerating those patterns and exploring the patterns in the short term not just in the long haul. So that, that kind of immediacy, because that's the reflection of culture. Everything's moving faster, faster and faster. And I think our attention spans have everything to do with that. And when I watch my old favorite shows, when I watch old SCTVs and things, mm-hmm. I get frustrated at the pace because yeah. we're all caught up in this, you know. And that's not unique to the Herald. I think that's just culture. You know, we've been talking a lot about this improv and stuff, but I think it'd also be interesting to talk about because these aren't we're talking about a very specific type of comedy that is made by Hollywood that has like these very clear genre influences because, you know, in the past it would be like rom-coms and now it's like action comedies more than anything else. And I mean, I think there's there are also definitely still people out there who want to be Woody Allen. Mm -hmm. And there are like, I mean, I think Louis C.K. is sort of like the perfect example of this where he's you know, very, he's trying to, or at least if you listen to his DVD commentaries, he's very, he's like trying to reference, you know, great films with certain shots and certain setups. And like the whole approach of it is very much like this, you know, observational New York based sort of thing. And there are people, there are definitely people who still do this. So I guess, where do they fit into this world and like why aren't they why are they just sort of like stuck on tv as opposed to being in the theater well isn't it the thing where what you were saying uh in your piece it's about the international side of it like mm-hmm. if it's hyper local hyper new york city then it's not, not going to travel very well right and that's probably one of the reasons that he doesn't get the money and he's also very he's a very principled guy he doesn't want to compromise i mean mm-hmm. I, I think fx gives him if not total freedom close to it mm-hmm. and he's not going to get that on a studio film and i think that's probably the main reason he doesn't do it but yeah there's so much amazing stuff happening on television that movies can't really compare with i mean nathan uh, nathan for you yes it's just mind, or, uh, mind-blowing john uh, glazer loves gear which i haven't seen yet but i've heard amazing things about um no there's a and the stuff brett gelman did on the was it cartoon network yeah those little mini movies mm-hmm. um are quite <laughs> provocative yeah. i guess i guess you'd say yeah. um and none of that stuff would ever get get green lit for hollywood i mean um and also I, you mentioned romantic comedies and why 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 aren't those made anymore is it uh, I, that's kind of a baffling yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ab- absence as well i mean this I guess there's the uh, the intern. I mean, what what else what else has there been? Maybe Louis will make that movie. I don't see why not, as long as he can stay around. And I I really enjoy watching his TV show. I think the line between TV. I mean, I'm not the first to observe this, but between TV and movies, getting real blurred, mm-hmm. and kind of some of the things that I had to go to a Woody Allen movie to enjoy. 
I can enjoy just by watching Louis on FX. Yeah. So why can't that kind of thing live there happily? And it, it does. And Louis's other series was quite good too. The one, gosh. Uh, Horace and Pete? Yes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was real interesting. Hmm. And I'll bet very few people have seen it. Well, he didn't. He did the weird thing where he like didn't advertise it, and then he's like, he just dropped it. Yeah. He just dropped, just dropped it, it, and then he's and like, then I'm broke. Pay, you had to pay weirdly different price per episode. And yeah, I, I didn't mind. Okay, well, I, I watched did, a few episodes. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't get into it because I feel like, and this is something that a lot of stand-ups that happens to a lot of stand-ups where it's just like he's definitely entered like his preachy phase. Like Carlin had a preachy phase that lasted until he died. And this is like, because there are like parts where it's like that guy, the, the hipster comes into the bar and he's like, yeah. why is my beer more expensive? And it's like, because you're a hipster, dude. <laughs> yeah. You're ruining this neighborhood. And then like Lori mm-hmm. Metcalf's big speech about how she misses real men. I'm like, that's not a thing a woman would say. Like it's, it's like it comes down to like, I'm like, I understand what you're saying. I understand the point. And you're like really hammering at home too much. But I Please don't write women like that. It's a very <laughs> theatrical show, though. It's very Playhouse 90. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. People are just doing, yeah. all of a sudden, hauling off on big monologues. And I, I, I do. I agree with Violet, though. It's it's it, it, it all, it's a very admirable, like, undertaking. Yeah. But I found it to be too on the nose and too, too obvious. It's very obvious, every every scene, what it's trying to convey. Mm-hmm. And then you have to sit through the rest of the scene. I mean, the, the <laughs> actors are yeah. very... Are tremendous, and of I mean, course. I love. It, I think it, it it's true, and I I think it took Louis a lot of shows. The way it took um, Gary Shandling a few shows mm-hmm. to get to Larry Sanders. Right. It took Louis a couple shows before he settled on that FX Louis, which mm-hmm. was so good. Horace yeah. and Pete, he starts going really far out, mm-hmm. and why not? If you're an artist and you can go far oh, out, I mean, it's amazing that he did it. Like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's flaw. It is. It does have those flaws, but also he did go into some some weird places mm-hmm. that you usually don't see, and you don't see Alan Alda in that light. And right. I rarely right. see Stephen Wright, and those that's always oh, a good Wright's thing so to good. see. <laughs> Stephen Wright. Yes, I feel like we could also just like spend the rest of this podcast just talking about people we would like to see more from. Just like, why don't they make something with? <laughs> You know, oh, yeah, for the longest time, I was uh, for me, it was Anna Ferris, uh, yeah, and smiley face and the house bunny are just tremendous. And she never got, yeah, she, she had that one big budget rom com that I forget the title of now, mm-hmm. um, with Chris Evans. Uh, I think that failed, and that was the last chance, and then it was over for, and then she moved to television on that show mom with alice and janney another incredible cast on yeah. that show. it's a pretty good show but i wish i i wish she had more of an opportunity in film because she's an, like an incredible physical comedian some of those bits in the house bunny still kill me yeah. she was good in keanu like the way in which key and peel sort of tried to take what they did on tv and bring it to film and but just like one very narrow aspect of it and mm-hmm. it's like so unfortunate because it's like what made the sketches well obviously like obviously it's a sketch show so there's a lot of variety but with that it was just like so narrow and like a repetition of things where it was like i get this you can do you can push it another way mm-hmm. but will forte was great i love will forte and <laughs> anything as always yeah. and, and like i mean i am looking forward if there is a mcgruber two crossing my fingers hey let's make it happen <laughs> I don't know that the first one is quite brilliant. Yeah. Um, and if I want to take a side tour, you mentioned the DVD commentary, the art of the DVD commentary. Yes. Perfected by, by Adam McKay. I don't know. Have you ever listened to his, on um, the Anchorman one, they, they like Lou Rawls shows up and they just start talking <laughs> to Lou Rawls about random stuff. 
on Step Brothers. Oh, does Adam just talk about irrelevant yes. things that oh have nothing God. to do with and the on, movie? There are a, lot, a lot of them are like long, just improvisations. And in Step Brothers, Baron Davis shows up, the basketball player, and they come <laughs> and they they just start talking about the neighborhood they shot some you know some scenes in. And they come up with a random song, and um, they're quite brilliant. So I would recommend those. I mean that. Like as a, it is a dying medium now, of course. Yeah, but like the DVD was, commentary. Yeah, oh, oh the DVD. Oh, oh the DVD, right? And the commentaries are going to go, go with go it, with it yeah. which sucks because those are like because that was sort of coming up as I was going into film school, and I would like obsessively yeah. listen. To, like that was the f- I wouldn't even watch the movie; I would just like go right to the commentary. Like I loved that. I mean, even like The Simpsons, like just mm-hmm. watch rewatching these things that I had seen a million times with like, you know, hearing. I don't know, Matt Groening make a not funny joke. Be like, oh, it's everyone but you who made this amazing. Yeah, I'm a sucker for a good DVD commentary too. My serious side loves them. But then when somebody gets starts screwing around or yeah. gets really creative with them, it's so good. Like the Spinal Tap DVD is almost like a sequel to Spinal Tap because <laughs> it's just 85 more minutes of, of pure material because they're in character. Complaining about how Marty DeBerge butchered them <laughs> so bad made them look terrible. So that for me took the was the first one I heard that really took the DVD yeah, commentary that, that to that. It as another form of performance. I it really is. Um, I'll, another one I'd recommend throughout there: Val Kilmer on the Spartan DVD. Ooh. The entire commentary, he's just insulting everybody. Who made oh the movie. no! <laughs> but like he's clearly oh. joking around. But it's oh, okay. a full hour and a half long <laughs> performance. <laughs> Highly recommend it. <sighs> I remember I did an interview with him and Harmony Corinne and they were like so excited because I had a book in my purse and they were like so excited that I had a book in my purse. Like they were, it was like the most like, I was like, oh, you really do live in LA. Okay. Like they were like, oh, wow. It feels, it feels even better to read it on that type of book. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Anyway, sorry for that digression, but isn't, isn't that what comedy is? What is comedy? Digression. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we've solved it. Farts. Farts. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to bring up? We've got a lot of brilliant things we'd like to say, but we're not going to share it with you. Right. Damn it. They have to, they'll have to uh, listen to the DVD commentary of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do that immediately after. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. I like the idea of doing an audio commentary of <laughs> an audio work. That's a very good. Uh, very, and they just play over no, each we'll, other. The, no, we'll do a video commentary oh, yeah. of the audio show. That, yeah, that could work too. Just act out nope. what we try. We're sort of in prob- like a, a interpretive dance sort of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, you created a new medium. Thank- That's where I the commentary tra- track comes out first. Mm-hmm. And then the picture based I'm, on the commentary track. I'm filled with great ideas. I'm just waiting for the money to start rolling in any minute now. Well, um, you make all your money on your worst work in the business. <laughs> right. No one gets paid for their best stuff. That's yeah. all free. You give that away for free in your 20s. <laughs> huh? Huh? Then you start making money in your 40s when it's all schlock. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? that? I don't know. That's uh, that's a law of nature for some reason. Oh, another thing, guys, I wanted to throw out there whose work I enjoy is uh, the Lonely Island guys. Uh, oh, I yeah. thought Popstar was pretty fun and, uh, and uh, Hot Rod is very good. They have this unique kind of sensibility that i you know connect with the the joke in pop star where where bill Hader is uh cosplaying flatliners was uh just beautiful i wanted way more of that, that oh was... i got to see that i haven't seen the the pop star one yet but yeah. their videos are always funny mm-hmm. and just packed just just packed with with stuff they make sure that they really yeah it's... that thing of using the whole buffalo they, yeah. they, they really... do, but I, I mean i wish pop star was a little longer i wish they spread out some of the jokes a little more sometimes they 
they hit and then moved on a little too fast for me. But uh, yeah, I'd recommend that one too. Yeah, they're a great group. You could tell they have their own sensibility and, and harmony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually a good question. Balance. Like, how is that equilibrium reached? Because we were talking before about, like, you know, sometimes you want the side to be the main, but, like, sometimes the side becomes main and it's horrible. And it's really awful. I think that beetle phenomenon, that thing of when a little tribe comes up that somehow have this little set, I think it comes from being from the same neighborhood Hmm. or having been roommates and that whole it's that whole accident of birth and how old you were when mm-hmm. you know when you're 16 and you were zealous and you had those other 16 year old i think there's a metamorphosis that takes place to create a beetle effect mm. the beetles wouldn't be the beetles if they were all from different neighborhoods right and having those common experiences and going through them together and bonding and all that stuff and i think that makes you put your ego aside for your friends too and maybe egos tear groups apart ultimately but I, I think it's this whole luck and accident of birth business that has to do with our loves. And if you can do your work with people you love and people you came up with, there's a magic that happens there. I know that's when I did all my best work was the, all my, my college buddies. I was just lucky enough to stay with them through the uh, course of the, the early part of my career when I wasn't making any money. Mm. Not that I am now. <laughs> <laughs> John C. Riley yeah. and Will Ferrell, like when they're together, like it's, that's a remar- that's a remarkable thing. It's remarkable. There's yeah, an alchemy there, and it's yeah. just a shame they haven't been able to work with each other longer. What was the the Adam McKay when I interviewed him said he was working on a movie where they were going to be going down to Mexico and building building a wall uh, on the border. <laughs> oh, I like that. They idea. were like, yeah, but I don't think uh, who knows when it's going to get made because he's <laughs> so busy now. He's working with. Uh, on that Theranos movie now, I think. Adam's but, the guy who really brought the Harold and the Harold structure, I think, into Hollywood movies more mm-hmm. than anybody that I know. Because he was a, he's, a, a, Adam is a real practitioner of the Harold, a true mm-hmm. Haralder. And he also brings that language with him when he, produce, when he works on set. He talks about game all the time. Mm-hmm. And if it's someone who doesn't know game, you get it, you cop to it, because we do, because we're all ch- children once. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard that Adam was going to be doing a biopic of Dick Cheney. Yes. Is that that's, real? That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, so he has, like, multiple projects. I don't think the feral, feral rally thing is going to happen anytime soon. Oh, but. well, I love that. I, I was in uh, You're Welcome America, which was yes. Will Ferrell's Fantastic, one-man show yeah. where he played mm-hmm. George Bush, which was directed by McKay. So I consider that Cheney thing sort of a spiritual sequel to <laughs> You're Welcome America, A Final Night with George W. Bush. Yeah, well, I mean, even, I mean, I was actually on a podcast earlier this week talking about Will Ferrell as, like, the comedy star of the Bush era. And I mean, we were talking about the end of Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby. And like, the film is definitely punching down. It's making kind of, kind of making fun of NASCAR people. And it's, but it's also kind of working through this gay panic that was definitely like a thematic concern then during this big finale where they bust, you know, their cars are destroyed. They're out of their protector shells. They run to the finish line. They jump and they're splayed on the pavement and then they embrace and kiss. This is intercut with the owner of Ricky Bobby's car in the skybox talking with Halliburton executives. So I think that it's like even the way that political commentary works in America, you're welcome, I think is really unique and not condescending in any way. And there are like some really salient points made about 
who George W. Bush is in this utterly ludicrous show where you quote unquote see his penis a couple times and <laughs> splashed on the screen. What is it? The, they the are Western penises. Grip. Yeah, the Western, Western grip hand job. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one thing that that was the one thing that stuck in my mind. The Western grip hand job. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I guess they do make fun of NASCAR a little bit, but they also elevate it. Yeah. The way that, and this is something the Herald does, which is you cast down the holy. Mm. You, you you bring the holy down to earth well, and, and you elevate the profane. Right. And they treated George Bush as if he was just a good old boy out to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, and it keeps things buoyant, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I, I always come back to like that, like probably the funniest part for me is when he, uh, you know, as George W. Bush, Will Ferrell tells a story about how he's on his ranch in Crawford, Texas, which Carl Rove made him buy to seem more relatable. And he tells this ridiculous story about how he got trapped in a mine shaft <laughs> yep. with his father and a couple of his brothers. And at one point, his father screams at him, why are you the only person in this family who has a Texas accent? And it's like, and it's, it's just like, for me, I think that's like such a lightning rod moment because it's like, yeah, why, why the fuck is that? Like, who, he's been conning us this whole time. Like, this is all just this massive illusion, but it keeps going and then they're all saved by... Barbara, scary woman Bush, who pulls him out. Barbara like, Bush pulls them all out, yeah. tears the, throws the rocks aside, <laughs> yes. and carries them all bodily. <laughs> like a muscular ox. I think that was a lot. Oh Obviously, I'm obsessed by this. Obviously, I'm obsessed by this. I and I think to watch this again immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause, and it's so funny because now, like, what is the dominant mode of political humor? It's like, Somebody sitting at a desk and doing the news for you in like a silly voice. And like right. to me, that's so deadly. And also, I mean, it's not I mean, nothing new. I feel like it's kind of irresponsible because people feel like, well, John Oliver is telling me the real news. And it's like, John Oliver is a comedian. Mm-hmm. He's not He's He's not 60 minutes. Like, don't treat his show like 60 minutes or Samantha B mm-hmm. or any of these people. Like, it's kind of it's 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 a topsy turvy world when you have like people actual like news people talking about kim kardashian and then right the... i mean it's very insular kind of backslapping preaching to the choir kind of thing and yeah it, it, i don't think it actually changes any minds it's... no i mean it's so smug like mm-hmm. for me i can't get past the smugness i aside from the these other larger issues it's just it it really irks me and rubs me the wrong way but obviously i'm sure lots of people it, it works it gets it the ratings no i'm with you on that i agree 100 percent from I'm I'm a Craig Kilburn guy, so yes, it's time. It's Thursday night, time to dance, dance, dance. Yes, that's the right way. That's the right way. No, it's but it's weird. It's like I feel like again, you know, even in it, like so much of the nuance is gone. Even in something like that, that is so specific. Like mm-hmm. the idea that literally you have like three different people doing that, the same thing, the yeah. exact same thing, mm-hmm. and that you can go like, and then they're getting so granular in the jokes mm-hmm. that they're making when they're just telling you something about the news you know or well, something that's going on in the world and then it all multiplies how they eviscerated somebody and it's uh, <sighs> i know the great the great mass happens. murderer john oliver yeah they, they, yeah the smug doesn't help no just tell the joke yeah and if the joke dies move on tell the next one mm-hmm. comedians are endlessly commenting on they have to uh, every comic has to comment if the joke doesn't go the way they wanted it to they, they can't right. move on mm-hmm. without at least getting a titter even yeah. if they get a comment on the thing. Just bring it out. I like to let it hang there. 
<laughs> if my line dies, just embrace that silence. Let it hang. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It is a weirdly sadistic thing. A little bit. A li- it's a, like a little bit because it's like, I've definitely been at comedy clubs where you experience the opposite of laughter. And it's really uncomfortable. The opposite of laughter. Yes. <laughs> we've like, all heard it. Yeah, we've all heard it. We all know what it is. But it's like kind of when you're there with a person who is like needs you to give that to them. It's a really scary thing. It's like a weird, it's like a weird hard thing. Mm-hmm. At least for me. I don't know. I'm from Iowa. I'm like always embarrassed. <laughs> I'm always prepared for people. Bordering, bordering on English. <laughs> I will say that. <clears throat> no, it is a very uneasy, awkward thing. And I guess you can poke at that and let it grow. And then you open people up a little bit to something else, maybe. I think so. It really does. It, it, it lays, I, I think, a little groundwork for whatever the next thing is going to be, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I want. I always want the guy to move on if it didn't work. Just move on. Get on with it. Yeah. Bella. Yeah. I mean, and we don't even have to like get super into this, but I feel like the first person I really saw do that, but successfully, and then it sort of became unsuccessful, was Conan O'Brien because he would always like, he always <clears throat> does his monologue mm-hmm. and like he would kind of, the monologue writers were not the people who were writing the sketches. I always felt like because the sketches were just so subversive and you're absolutely right they were two different teams yeah i mean you can tell you can just like tell like Mm -hmm. i mean because like those sketches in on conan o'brien like i would tape them and watch them over and over and over again and like that was i feel like that's why i am like anytime jonathan the glazer does anything i'm like i have to see it (laughs) like it's like for me he's just like such a pinnacle like a mountain of comedy to me because it's like my entire like so much of my formative years were spent watching him do saying like pubes to somebody well, you know i'm talking about silence is glazer is a guy who can appreciate silence and negative space yes. in a piece yes and let it let it be there and use it for what it is yeah yeah because i mean he there's an episode i mean i don't want to spoil it for you go right ahead but there's an episode of john glazer loves gear that is like it takes the concept of it was just a dream to this insane level that you can't even like you're like I mean for me when I watch it it's like I'm not even laughing I'm just like screaming because I'm like I can't believe this is happening <laughs> it's like so exciting to me when I watch the best comedies I'm not laughing I'm just kind of get my jaws agape yeah when I watch Andy Daly's review show yes oh my god I'm, I'm yes. often not laughing and saying this is the funniest thing I've ever seen right. yeah and it is like super uncomfortable like it's it's. oh yeah because you're also feeling it. horrible for the people in the, in the show <laughs> god I know <laughs> Like what I guess is cringe what? comedy. Cringe comedy is kind. Of, it's not a new thing, but it's no. something that's really taken off. And I think Rick, Ricky Gervais's office mm-hmm. was sort of a a, a a real bust out for cringe comedy, mm-hmm. and uh, and review definitely has uh, lots of shades of that. Yeah, yeah. And Nathan for you as well. Uh, lots of cringe because yeah. the character of Nathan is so insecure. And this fake reality show that well he had because he has like the I mean for me like there's so many layers with that because it's like it's yes. the reality show like this person has to perform this role yeah and you can totally see that it's like performing a role but he's they're completely committed to it the uh, the scene in Smokers Are Loud which is just amazing is when he's casting the movie and he's making that woman say I love you over <laughs> and over and over again it's just devastating because he's it's like one of the saddest things I've seen in a in a in a comedy. <laughs> Or anything, really, I guess, because he's he's needs. Yeah, because he doesn't. He hasn't heard this before. Anybody tell him, so he makes her 
rerun the line over and over again. And at first it's funny, but then it's becomes very sad. And he's like this broken, <laughs> this broken guy. And the whole, the whole episode is just brilliant and like structurally. And oh yeah, it becomes this avant-garde thing. It's like for sure. I mean, even like the season three finale where he assumes the identity mm-hmm. of this other guy and then lives out this like insane hero fantasy and like gets him a girlfriend and like, I love you. And she's like, what? Yes. <laughs> like that whole thing. Like it's like. Yeah. Nathan Fielder, it pretends to, he, he walks between buildings on a high wire act and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, hires, which took him like months and months and months to do yeah and pretend he puts on makeup so he looks like this other guy to pretend but he doesn't look guy, like him not he, at all he looks yeah. like a ghoul he looks like a ghoul <laughs> but he sort of looks like him <laughs> to impress to impress this girl who he's only met once before right yes, um, and yes. so it's all this construction of Nathan Fiedler and the guy that he hired that he he's doing it for doesn't really care no so it's so this megalomania and insecurity just building and building to the crazy levels yeah. So the cringe is just suffering, I think, and I'm not the first to say that, but con- you asked the question before, and comedy is suffering. Tragedy is also suffering. Yeah. So I guess the difference between comedy and tragedy and comedy and drama is just how you do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of the funniest stuff for me is things that are played straight. But then become you know and, and obviously the Peter role sellers yeah and like the role of like the straight man in you know somebody like Stephen Colbert who is like a funny straight man mm-hmm. and like how really hard that is to do but he like like Phil Hartman or yeah Phil Hartman too like there's it's like certain people have this ability to like ride a bicycle and like spinning a plate on your finger or something <laughs> to <Yes>. me <laughs> it's very complicated do you yes. have a wrap up segment yeah this is the wrap up we're wrapping uh, it up is this it this is it oh shit we're in it. <laughs> We're in it already. This is so, what I didn't so do. My, I didn't do my homework on this part. It's fine. Oh, yeah, you didn't want to prepare. You wanted to just right. react in the white hot spotlight. Yes. So before we, no end, one's listening by wow. this point. No, the long, long gone. No. <laughs> well, that's a trick. That's a trick. Pretend like you know, dance like nobody's watching. Um, podcast like nobody's listening. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because they're not. They're not. <laughs> it's often true. Yeah. Before we close, as we always do, it would be great to go around and say a film that you've seen recently that you liked. I will go first, perhaps give you time to think about what you saw. I'm going to say, I'm going to be very pretentious and I'm going to say um, Agnes Varda's One Sings, The Other Doesn't. It's this really wonderful film from like her sort of like mid 70s period. And it's about abortion rights in France, which were kind of messed up, like, to say the least, back then. I mean, it's a wonderful film. It does interesting things formally. And just like she was here a few weeks ago uh, in a talk with Melissa Anderson, um, and she said, it's kind of amazing that we still have to fight for this shit. Like, I can't believe I'm still doing this shit, basically, sort of was her her, her message about that. So, I don't know, it was... Um, like rewatching America, you're welcome. It's like good to be reminded of the way things were. And, you know, it's not always bad to be reminded that things haven't changed and that you should still be angry about a lot of things. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm going to, I mean, I don't know. How... So last night in preparation for this August event, I rewatched uh, Anchorman. Oh, yes. I did too. And I was curious to revisit it because that movie is, you know, uh, spread its wings throughout popular culture so much at all the quotes and everything. I thought if watching it again, it would uh, dilute its impact as something like secondhand, but it's still, it's still quite, quite brilliant from start to finish. It never, it never lets up. And it also doesn't succumb to the mechanical last act. I mean, the end of the movie, 
there's a dog speaking dog language to a bear. <laughs> it's subtitled, and the uh, everything about it is is still quite quite unexpected and brilliant and especially like all the supporting performances i'm still quite in love with 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 paul rudd's uh, brian fantana who wouldn't be and uh and my i always change my favorite line from that film but i think it's still paul rudd's uh naming his his cock and balls uh it's the octagon and uh oh my uh dr james westfall and dr kenneth noisewater <laughs> moved on so it still holds up uh I wish I had something more uh, you know, impressive no. that I watched. But no, I'm being, I, I want to be honest with the world, with the legions of podcast <laughs> listeners. And so that's what happens. I can't think of one. I can't <laughs> think of one. I, I, I feel like I need an edit here. I watch, you know, I watch all these old movies all the time. They're, they're, often, they're, they're often not great. <laughs> um, have I seen any? I watched a Cohen movie recently. A couple of them. And I, I just think the Cohen brothers are, you know, sometimes they hit and sometimes they don't. Their stuff seems to me to be the freshest stuff around, even some of their stuff that has been around. I watched A Serious Man, and I didn't love A Serious Man, but I found myself liking it so damn much. There's so much attention to detail, and I hate to use a word like interesting, but they're damned interesting, and they don't seem to be too hung up on entertaining you all the time, mm. uh, even though they're doing just that, I think, most of the time. And I, I wish there were more movies and movie makers like them because I get out of the house, I leave the house and make sure to see every Cohen movie in the theater. Mm. And there's very few people around who, who I do that for. Maybe Terry Gilliam and David Lynch might be the only other two. Mm. And I... I love that all the kind of new techniques of comedy that we're learning in the Herald and all these other places are working their way on the big screen. But I, I would like for more comedy makers to get in touch with their inner serious man and be a fucking grown up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because being in touch with your inner, inner child is nice. It's your inner child, not your inner child and outer child. Right. You know? <laughs> Because there's, I think there is an infantilization of entertainment going on. Absolutely. And come on, guys. <laughs> you know, let's grow up a little. And yeah, let's be funny. Let's be stupid when we want to be stupid. But let's also talk about something. And Adam McKay does the dumbest. He'll do the dumbest scenes. Yes. And even some dumb movies. And there's always something underneath it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anchorman is a lot of idiocy. Again and again, but uh, underneath it all, woman in the workplace. Yeah, Christina oh, Applegate's oh, character. Yeah. Yes, and number and two, Catherine Hahn. Can I say Catherine fucking Hahn and an anchor man? She has like two lines. Oh my god, she's so good. <laughs> yeah, when uh, she's telling Christina Applegate that she can write anything on the uh, teleprompter and he'll read it, and she goes, "Yes, anything." <laughs> yes. like she almost runs away with that movie, and she's uh, incredible. Also underused, I guess, but totally. she works a lot. But she should be like. Superstar. Yeah. <laughs> and with Anchorman too, you know, they look something in the eye. They looked cable news in the eye. Yes. Whereas first they were looking so there, there's there is this subversion there. Totally. And you you know, in this there's a wonderful book called Comedy by the Numbers. Mm -hmm. And they number one and it's they literally go through the numbers <laughs> and it's an insane book. It's insane. It's really funny. <laughs> and they like they mean it all and mean none of it at the same time. And number one is sticking it to the man. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> And when I first read that, I was like, huh? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And there is that, 
you know, for me, the great American comedy is Animal House. Mm. And if anyone hasn't seen Animal House, it's just, it's got all the jackassery, but it, it really is great. It really is just a wonderful, perfect American <laughs> comedy because it just says, fuck you to the man. Yeah. <laughs> a whole lot. So, no, I, I wish I had a favorite. But uh, I'm old, That's and fine. I don't go to the pictures anymore. No, it's fine. No, I mean, I mean, home viewing is totally fine. I know the pictures come to us, and then I don't watch them. I know it's hard to pay attention on a smaller screen. And I will say, I mean, I was saying that like Talladega Nights is kind of punching down, but it also, I think he picked NASCAR not just because it's like, oh boy, we can get people doing like silly Southern accents and sort of make fun of this like very, you know, free freedom fries sort of an attitude it's also making fun of like commercialization and like our mm -hmm. obsession with consumer culture and like epitomized of course by when the race is interrupted by an applebee's commercial like they show a, an applebee's commercial from like 2005 in the middle of this movie and it's it's hilarious and, it's, and also it, that dinner scene where they're eating you know coke and, yes and kfc and they named their son's walker in texas ranger <laughs> yes yeah, there's a lot of that. That's yeah, so when we're just getting silly in the movies, I think it's incumbent upon us to reflect and look at what we're doing. When I'm working with young sketch writers, I'm saying, well, what are you satirizing here? They say nothing. It's just a cup. Really? It's just a cup? Yeah, I thought it was a funny word. It's a, Okay, maybe it's a funny word. Maybe it's just <laughs> funny. But now that we're here, now that we're on stage rehearsing this thing, think about it. Yeah. Does this Does this have something to do with anything that's going on in the world? Because it came from their subconscious. It mm -hmm. came from somewhere. And so, yeah, yeah, we want to see more of that. Or at least I do. Do you? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, please. Uh, we've changed the world. <laughs> Another one I saw was, I saw Putney Swope for the first time oh. last week. It's a Robert Downey Sr. It's oh. this brutal satire of the advertising business mm -hmm. where uh, mm. the, the, the board uh, accidentally <laughs> votes a black man as the, the chairman of the board and he fires everybody and it becomes like a black militarist organization. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And then you, you see there, it has, it has some what like year? 69. And it has some sketched elements because it's peppered throughout through the commercials they make, mm -hmm. which have like nothing to do with the products. They're quite hilarious. There's one um, face-off. It's like a face cream, and it's this interracial couple talking about how much they love like fucking each other. <laughs> so it, yeah, it's, I'd recommend that too. Wow, I gotta do that. It's pretty wild. Yeah, take take the freight, take the freight, please. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for coming. This was hilarious. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks, Bile. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs> <laughs>